When the pandemic swept across the country, sending the population into quarantine, time stood still. The effects on entertainment and marketing were immediate and permanent. Now, in the midst of societal change, it's time to focus on the future. As producers, creatives, and storytellers, we have the ability to be a vehicle for a voice. Vision 2021 bottles this moment in time while empowering people to embrace change and confidently move into the future. So, hang out. We're going to talk to some accomplished friends and colleagues and tell stories, provide some knowledge, and make some predictions. First up, Michael Smith, Chief Marketing Officer of NPR. I had the privilege of working with Michael a few years back and have admired his intelligence via his LinkedIn post for some time now. We pack a lot in, including taking the CMO seat during a pandemic, diversity, and predictions of the future of marketing. Let's go. Okay. Well, uh, hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. You know, I really appreciate you agreeing to be a part of this. When I had this idea, you were actually one of the first people that came to mind. I think that anybody knows you or follows you on LinkedIn, like I do, uh, knows just how smart and insightful you are. I personally find your posts very interesting. And when there's a high-profile conversation in the industry, I know that you're going to have a take on it. And uh, so looking forward to running this drill with you. So to get us started, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how quarantine life has looked for you? Well, I currently am the chief marketing officer for NPR, which I started in the beginning of April. And uh, it's got a, uh, a mixed blessing, I guess, of quarantine life, starting a new job, which is great when, you know, 30 million other people have lost their jobs. But it's also sort of muted in the sense that I've started a job where I was immediately uh, forced to work remotely. And I still haven't met, actually physically met anyone, any of the 50 or 60 people on my team. So kind of surreal in a way. In a way. Um, but we've been yeah. making the most of it, you know, the, the best of it. And, and we've been still producing, I think, really great work. And uh, I've been getting I'm boarded, I think, very well in the sense that I've met a ton of people in my own team and across the, the company. And uh, it's been going, you know, it's been going as well as, as possible under the circumstances. Yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit um, in some of these questions, because the whole fact that you started and took the seat in April is in, a, in of itself could be a full conversation um, or podcast. So as we dive in here, a quick review of how this goes. I'm going to run through a series of questions. You provide me with your expert insights, and uh, we'll check the receipts down the road. And away we go. Question one. What was the first thing you remember as being the sign that things were going to be different moving forward? I think it was really the scientific data that said that most of the cases of COVID were asymptomatic, and that combined with the fact that we can't test all 300 million people in the country. So it meant that we really needed to prolong the social distancing approach because, you know, 60 or 70 percent of people who have COVID are not symptomatic. That means that it's really hard to know where it is and um, where the danger is. Uh, So social distancing is something that we're going to have to do at least until we have a vaccine, I think. And what that means, what what the light went off in my head is that, well, if we're going to have to social distance for the next six or 12 or 18 months, 
that's a lot different uh, world than what we thought when this first started. You know, I think we all thought it was going to be sort of a V-shaped recovery. It was going to be this immediate lockdown. We would get everything under control. And then, you know, by the early spring, things would bounce back right away. And I think the need for prolonged social distancing has made us realize that, no, it's, it's not going to be a V. It's going to be maybe more of a, of a U or kind of a swoosh shape. So actually, somebody said more of a checkmark shape recovery where it's yeah. a slow climb back. And because social distancing, I think the thing that is so devastating to our industry and other industries is that it basically means that social gatherings are, are dangerous. And so what is, you know, that destroys the dining industry, the movie theater industry, the travel industry, the retail industry, the concert industry, the sports industry, you know, the yeah. huge sectors of, sectors of our economy you know, realistically cannot resume. And even if they were to reopen, they're going to reopen it at a much smaller scale because of social distancing. So until there's a um, vaccine or you know, some magic uh, medical cure, other ma- medical cure, those sectors of the economy are going to be operating you know, at 50% or 30% of what they used to be for a long, long time. And so yeah. that, that makes me realize that it's going to take a long time to get back to, to full normal. Right. That kind of initial reaction to, oh, this is not just a couple of weeks. This is, this is going to be much longer and just a new way of life. For me, it was when the NBA walked away and it was that infamous night that kind of everything shut down. I remember watching the news and it was kind of, you know, the ticker at the bottom was just kind of starting to note professional basketball and so forth. It was, uh, you know, shutting down for a little while and we just didn't know when. So question two goes back to what you alluded to in your introduction, because I, I can't wait to hear about this. Take me through this. In April of this year, you officially took the seat as CMO of NPR. What was the first Zoom like with your team? And what were the key objectives you wanted to communicate to them? I think the first step was to just uh, let them know that my main concern was their health and safety and their emotional well-being. And to say that, you know, my leadership strategy is really all about servant leadership, which is you know, about uh, putting employees and, and the people that work with you first and being a resource and facilitator for their success. So I talked a lot about my philosophy as, as a leader and really not at all about kind of objectives or strategies or business things that we were going to be trying to do. But my attitude was, you know, the seat has been open for a little while. You guys have been operating fantastically well before I got here. So it's not like all of a sudden I show up and I've got to you know, immediately pull a whole lot of levers. I'm going right. to take time to, to, to just learn and, and absorb the organization and learn more about you and figure out how you know, I can help accentuate what you do. And then over time, I'll get more involved in, in the day-to-day decision-making and, and strategy. But that, it needs, I, I need a little time to do that. And so that's what I've really spent the first maybe six to eight weeks doing. And I'm starting mm-hmm. to lean in a little bit more now into specific decisions and strategies and things. I mean, the, the overall meta strategy for NPR is that there are two huge shifts that are affecting our business, which is you know, affecting pretty much all businesses. One is the change in platform of people moving from uh, traditional um, analog radio to, to digital uh, on-demand audio consumption. And, and then the second is the change in audience demographics as America becomes more diverse. And you know, we have a brand that 
is primarily uh, anchored in terrestrial radio, serving older people, our median listener age is about 56, 57. And we need to you know, evolve our, our business into a digital first audio on demand type business that serves the next generation of listeners who are younger and more diverse um, than our traditional audience. So those are going to be the two, you know, the two key focus areas. Yeah. And, you know, the platform and the, the change and the, the progression of that is interesting. And to my count, I believe NPR has approximately 58 uh, podcast programs, which uh, all the ones that I've listened to or do on a regular basis are great. Um, but on top of that, you know, you do span news, culture, music, and even coffee these days. So was there an area or platform that you looked to first to see how it would react or to set your focus once you were able to kind of um, get to know your team? Or I guess you said you were going to be doing that now. Is there an area that you're, you're going to focus on first? Well, I think that you know, when you talk about the spanning lots of categories, it goes back to the founding mission of NPR. There was a guy named Bill Simmering back in 1970 with NPR's first program director. And he wrote the mission statement, and I'll just read like the, the first paragraph. It says, uh, "National Public Radio will serve the individual. It will promote personal growth. It will regard individual differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate. It will celebrate the human experience as infinitely varied rather than vacuous and banal or banal. It will encourage a sense of active and constructive participation rather than apathetic helplessness." So. It's a much more expansive idea of what NPR is. It's, you know, it's almost like it, we, we wrap around uh, a person and touch ma- many aspects of their lives through, through storytelling and all to the goal of making them a just more informed and more productive citizen. So, mm-hmm. you know, while people may know us most as a news brand, you know, I think that we see ourselves as much bigger than that. And so that's why we talk about things like you know, the coffee club that we launched. Yeah, yeah well, we look at we look at a variety of ways, uh, whether it's through music, through comedy, through you know, pop culture um, shows, science, you know, sort of information. I mean, everything from you mm-hmm. show like Hidden Brain to Wow in the World to Life Kit. We we do it in a variety of ways, and so we yeah. platforms that we look at first. Um, I don't think there's one single platform. I mean, the, 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 it's what will serve the goal of helping us get a younger and more diverse audience. And mm-hmm. it's clear that you're going to find that audience more on digital platforms. So you mentioned the podcast. That's a, definitely an area of focus. Um, YouTube is an area that has been really successful for us, with, especially for our, our Tiny Desk concert series, which has been really exploded in the last three or four years on YouTube. Oh, yeah. So I think, we're going to focus, I think we're going to continue to focus on making content for podcasting and for YouTube and maybe with TikTok and other social platforms as a way to reach younger and more diverse uh, listeners. As a kind of aside, I know that that was your background back when we met, um, I believe at Scripps, that was a lot of your focus there. So you, you've been kind of uh, focusing on these platforms for some time and I'm sure You've seen a lot of growth and and what's going on there. Any stories or insights you would want to share? The growth of uh, platforms like YouTube and TikTok and just the digital 
content space as a whole. And I think the quality of that programming and particularly the storytelling has really gone to great places and continues to do so. And I believe the current environment will even expedite that. So any any thoughts or stories or, uh, you know, uh, insight you want to share, please do. Well, I think that the the podcasting area has been something that we sort of stumbled into you know, 10, 12 years ago um, as we started uh, to put to stand up a few podcasts and then it's just been something that's just grown incredibly and we've leaned into it and, and the results have been fantastic. If you think about it, I think NPR has six or seven of the top 20 podcasts in the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that it's an area, I think our pod, overall podcast listening is, is more than doubled in the last uh, four years. So whether it's how I built wow. this or Ted, Ted radio hour, or planet money, or hidden brain, uh, wait, wait, don't tell me. That they're just, uh, you know, they're just all, they're all doing very, very well. We've, we've been able to extend our news brand into, uh, into a daily podcast ha- habit. You know, you look at what the yeah. New York Times has done with the daily. We launched a mm-hmm. podcast called Up, Up First, which is a daily news podcast, which is up there with the daily as one of the most popular, um, daily news podcasts. Um, we added the indicator from Planet Money, which is a daily version of that show. So, yeah. yeah, I think podcast. Yeah, podcasting has been amazingly successful for us. The other thing that's been great about podcasting is the audience. It's you know our our radio audience is, is like I said was in is in mid to late fifties on average, but our podcast audience is about twenty years younger than that. So, wow. um, so, so it's done a fantastic podcast. Has been really great at getting a a younger audience for us. You know, we still right. are challenged with getting a more diverse audience, and so that's something that we're going to focus on in terms of really awareness. And you know, we, we find that in research that overall NPR's awareness is relatively low uh, as a news brand. I think it's, it's about uh, in the low 50s in terms of percentage of Americans that have even heard of NPR. So there's a huge gap of people that don't know us. And especially among people of color, it, the numbers are even higher. It's about 55% of people of color have never even heard of NPR. So oh, wow. we feel good, good that if we introduce them to NPR, they'll like what they see. You know, when they see that uh, the variety of content, and we have shows like Code Switch, which is all about uh, race in America. We have shows that are hosted by um, diverse reporters like it's been a with Sam Sanders and um, yeah. uh, Hidden Brain, you know, with Shankar Bedenta, True Line. Right. But I think it's just a matter of getting the content in front of people. So that's one of the reasons why marketing is you know, going to be a big focus for us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, I appreciated your statement that you noted from uh, earlier about the people and the consumer really being the focus of of the brand and NPR. So brings me to, to my next question. We're on question number four, just to uh, keep us uh, honest here. So the launch of the coffee club earlier this month, I found super fascinating. And to some people, NPR getting into the coffee game, especially at a time like this, might seem a little odd. Um, however, when you when you get past the, the connection of news and coffee in the morning and read about the partnership with Counterculture and their brand values, it starts to make a little more sense. And Speaking to what you said earlier, can you tell me a little bit about what this initiative, but even further, the role that brands maybe need to play right now and how they need to be connecting with consumers and 
how they really need to be thinking about their partnerships and what that says to their consumers? Well, the Coffee Club is just part of our consumer products group that is part of the team that I that I lead. We have for a long time have had a successful on-site store uh, at, at the FBR headquarters. We're just you know, our fans get everything from T-shirts to coffee mugs to you know hats and books written by our hosts. I mean, it, so creating that touch point through products has just been a long-term strategy, a long-time strategy. And so the Coffee Club is just another extension of that. I think it, it, it actually is very timely because our building has been closed since the middle of March. So the ability for people to, to transact through e-commerce, you know, is really kind of timely for us. But so we'll, yeah, we'll always have brand extensions that help deepen the connection and the affinity for the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things when I was at, at Scripps, it, we did a lot of that. I um, oversaw our you know, restaurants and our magazine relationships and our, you know, we had a wine, we had a, we had cookware. So I think that, I think everybody sort of wants to emulate the, the Disney strategy of you create great IP and then you that IP do other experiences. So I think mm-hmm. that's something we'll, you know, we'll continue to do. In terms of the yeah. role brands play right now, yeah, I, I think that there's nothing new for us. I mean, we've, we've always positioned ourselves as the sort of best friend, a trusted friend that helps you navigate in the world and be a better person through all of our content. And so how we do that will evolve. And at first, it was kind of breaking news up to the minute con- uh, content around coronavirus. Uh, now, you know, as people are settling into the, into the long-term situation, there's a little bit of fatigue around that news. and They want a little more escape. And so that's why we'll content like uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or It's Been a Minute. And we have other kinds of shows that uh, help you take your mind off of things. So I like that. Moving on. So streaming and OTT services dominate headlines right now. Uh, what or who is standing out to you from a marketing standpoint? Uh, or if you don't want to name names, totally fine. But are you seeing anything from a marketing standpoint that's, that's catching your eye? Yeah, I think that in, you know, on the good side, I would actually say that HBO Max is doing a good job. It's a, you know, it's a complicated product because you've got H, you know they've got HBO Go and HBO Now, regular mm-hmm. regular HBO. And, but I know as a consumer, they've done a good job. And I, I got a message from my cable company telling me that as an HBO subscriber, I've been automatically upgraded to HBO Max. So they've done a, like a really nice segmented job at figuring out what your relationship is with that HBO and then giving you the message that's appropriate to you. So if you're a current HBO sub, here's the great news. If you're an HBO mm-hmm. now person, they've got a, you know, a different uh, strategy for that, for that consumer base. And I'm an AT&T phone customer. So I also got another email from them about um, an HBO you know, offer through my phone service. So I, I think that, that it's, it's a complicated thing for them because they have so many different relationships related to, uh, to HBO, but I think it's also their, their strength is that um, when they come out of this, they, if they can convert their entire HBO base over, plus get new people, I mean, they'll be up there in the 50, 60 million subscriber range very quickly. And I think they're probably yeah. you know, encouraged by what Disney was able to do. So I give them a lot of credit. You know, you said your cable provider, I would have totally pegged you as somebody that cut the cord a long time ago. Uh, you know, I I was lucky because, and this is a, this is the other thing about I give credit. You know, I, I think the myth of uh, people don't think about why skinny bundles have, have I think have struggled is that yeah. cable cable companies have been really aggressive 
at giving very attractive offers if you're an internet subscriber. So I have a high-speed internet line through, through Charter Spectrum. And it's actually a fiber line that it goes to our apartment building. So it's this really you know, oh, wow. 200, megabit, 200 megabit service they put in. And it, 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 and it comes as part of the building common charges. And you know, it's built into the building. And so right. what, what they did was they said that for everybody who lives in the building, then since you're now broadband subscribers, we'll give you a cable package for $40 a month. Uh, you know, basically, um, and I had been a regular cable subscriber before our building was rewired, and I was getting a disconnect because I was paying like $160 a month for regular yeah. internet and, cab- and cable. But then when they said, hey, you know, now you're going to get your building is paying for your internet. And if you want to keep TV, it's only 40 bucks a month. I was like, hey, sure. You know, I can watch CNN, yeah. watch some baseball games. It's, it's cheaper than YouTube for sure. <laughs> Yeah, so it is. I, it is. Which, so, so, so I think you know. Uh, so at the end of the day, a, a good deal is still a good deal. Yeah. Good deal. <laughs> so when you there's streaming galore out there, you've got a lot of competition. Everybody is um, fast tracking as much as they possibly can if they're not already to the market. How do you see the strategies progressing or even changing for some of these companies uh, moving forward? Um, I think that you know COVID is just going to accelerate, and people said this all along. It's going to accelerate the trends that we that were already in place. So I don't think there's going to be any major strategic changes. I think it's going to accelerate, obviously, cord cutting. It's going to accelerate streaming adoption because people who may not have thought of streaming as much are now doing it more because they're, you know, they're stuck at home. So uh, I think you'll just see everybody lean more into digital streaming across the industry. If you're a legacy company, you're going to you know, speed up what you were planning to do. If you're a streamer, you're going to double down and invest more. So, you know, and that's kind of the general, the general take. Yeah. Do you see, or how will this, how will the ad spend shift? How does that ladder, ladder up into that? Well, I think the ad spend was already shifting to, you know, from legacy to streaming. It was, Slowed by the fact that the, the measurement standards are still unclear with streaming, and the traditional TV still has huge scale, so it was the first place people wanted to be. I think that that, that hasn't changed even with COVID, with COVID. So I think you'll still see that shift from linear to streaming, but I don't know if it's going to really accelerate because eyeballs-wise, even though streaming has really gone up, linear has, has had is done pretty. I mean, all all TV viewing is gone up. So, it'll be interesting to right. see what happens after people return to work. If the cord cutting, especially with the, with sports, which is obviously just been accelerating cord cutting, there's no sports. Will, will will that stay and people will just stay cut? Or when sports come back, will people then resubscribe? Right. So right. Hard to see. Hard to say. But I think yeah. You know, yeah. To your other question about how does that affect marketing? Yeah. I mean, we definitely see that the use of mobile has gone up. Smartphone usage of people are at home has really exploded. Even desktop computing has really increased now as people work from home and they're on Zoom all the time. I think people are on their laptops, you know, more than they ever have been. You'd think that mobile advertising and, and desktop which advertising, which had been kind of a left for dead category, might pick back up. Oh, yeah. You know, mobile advertising is interesting space to watch right now because of just everything from the cost of acquisition being pretty high because of there there is so many eyeballs as as well as just 
the influencer market being an interesting play for some that maybe traditionally or in the past hadn't really dabbled in it. And so I think both of those are something I'm watching as well. Now I'm going to put you on the slide a little bit for question nine. Doing a little research on your LinkedIn um, in 2019, December. So it seems like that was a long time ago. And it it is, in fact, it was not. Uh, You did an interview with uh, Newsy Streamline in which you gave a five-year prediction. The first one being that there would be collaboration across walled gardens. And the second one being a consolidation of platforms. How has this changed or expedited those predictions? Yeah, it hasn't made a big change yet. There, uh, the, the, the problem I was, I was identifying was that one of the things that's holding back connected TV is that you've got these walled gardens uh, around data. So, you know, Roku is, is around a different operating system. So, Roku is one operating system. You know, Fire TV is another operating system. Apple TV is another operating system, and Consumers who are using apps with, um, within one OS, getting visibility uh, across all the different OSs is hard to do because Roku keeps their data, Amazon Fire keeps their data, and so on. And then the advantage of traditional linear TV is that you do have you know, one uniform standard called Nielsen ratings. When, you know, whether people think they're great or they're not, they, they are at least one currency that's used across all of, all of TV. And in connected TV, we don't have that yet. And so my prediction was that there would be more collaboration and, and, and more unification of, of, of standards. And whether that happens through the cooperation of the different platforms or whether there would be some consolidation of the platforms, I think that has to be solved. And one example of consolidation would be you know, Google has their own Android TV platform as well, which is another player in the market. You know, what if Google were to buy Roku? So, you know, which, which would then knock it down because in, in the mobile market you only have you, know, you have two platforms you have ios and you have android in connected tv you've got four you know at least four and then there's some other smaller ones as well so that's something that's going to have to be figured out right yeah i think something like that would be very interesting particularly on the google buying roku front uh that would uh immediately launch them into the game in a, in a bigger way. We're, we're entering question 10, and then after that, we have a bonus question. So uh, you're rounding the curve here. For question 10, what are you most excited about or optimistic for moving moving forward? Well, I think that, that the exciting thing is whenever there's external pressure, challenges, or crises, the entertainment business seems to always react uh, well to it because we're in, you know, if you think about it, we're all at our core, very creative people. And so it's always fun to see the different uh, ways that we adapt. I mean, a perfect example is think of all of the, the way people are, are shooting things from home now, and you know, whether it's a Saturday Night Live episode that was done 100% remotely, to, yeah. uh, to these table, table read episodes. There's all these new kind of creative ways of doing things and solving problems that come out, that come out of these things. And sometimes they can become lasting creative trends. And you know, I think about the writer's strike way back in the late 1980s. This is like when I first was getting into the business in the early 90s, and the late 80s and early 90s. And that writer's strike meant that, you know, at the time, primetime TV was pretty much 100% scripted in TV. The shows like, you know, Dallas and Knox Landing and MASH. And because of the lack of scripted programming, because of the writer's strike, people started to experiment with TV shows shot on video which typically um, you only saw video on like local news stations and field, field reports. 
And so people started to experiment with, well, what if we made full-length TV shows shot on video? And, and there was a show called Rescue 911 on CBS, which was kind of like an oh, yeah. uh, emergency rescue show that launched that season in 89. And then there was another show sure. that Fox launched called Cops um, that was all shot on video. And then there was another show called America's Funniest Home Videos that launched. They all launched in, in the fall season of 1989. And it really signaled a sea change in television. So now when you watch television, obviously, you know, Real Housewives, the... <laughs> I mean, this shot on video reality mm-hmm. TV is, 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 an, is an enduring genre, but people forget that that really came out of the crisis of the writer's strike in 88, 89. So I think that you know, this crisis is causing a lot of creative experiments, and I think some of them are going to stick and become like new genres that we'll, we'll live with going forward forever. Is there one that you see that you, you feel like might stick? Can I put you on the spot? and? As you know, for a bonus that, prediction there? Yeah, I think the low-tech sort of shot from home, uh, it's almost like, you know, what TikTok does, you know, what obviously what YouTube has done. The way that's kind of direct, I mean, John Krasinski has this new show, I forget what it's called. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, you know, where it's just kind of low-tech, but it's celebrities kind of going directly to, to you in a very intimate way. Yeah. I think that that might stick, you know, it's the idea that you've got to have all this prep and this many lights and this kind of production value and maybe you know for some things just just get it out there and people are fine with it uh and i think that may really um change the way like, like i could imagine you know like you see these shows like the um steel housewives reunion shows or, or mm-hmm. there was an online show they did around game of thrones like episode recap or like the talking dead those kinds of shows yeah where you talk right, about right. shows but they, even those shows are very high production value you know the shot uh, but maybe this will be a new trend where for any sort of high premium scripted show, you can just turn around a very simple you know, shot on iPhone sort of after show done in real time by the cast yeah. and without a whole lot of fancy production value. So Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I like that a lot. I think that that can also be kind of symbolic of what everybody's experiencing right now in this kind of ultimate equalizer. You know, there's been a little bit of a drop of the corporate veil and everybody's been humanized pretty well and we're seeing each other's homes on a daily basis. And so kind of being able to go to a lo-fi entertainment, like you mentioned, makes sense. And people are comfortable with it because they've gone to a, you know, quote unquote, lo-fi way of just having a meeting, you know, where people's kids are walking in or dogs are barking or whatever the case may be. All right. Bonus question. And this one is for our friends out there that maybe unfortunately have have been laid off due to everything that's going on. And we want to get everybody back in the game as, as quickly as we possibly can. So if you could, what are your recommendations for them? If you have any, is there a way that you would recommend people out there in the job market to either market themselves or is there a platform you, you would encourage them to check out? Any recommendations for the job market? In terms of platforms, there's one called Executive Thread. I think it's Exec Thread. You can find them online. They are a startup that started a couple of years ago that it's like a membership community where they aggregate job listings from headhunters and just insiders. So, for example, if you have been approached for, uh, by a, head, a headhunter about a job, or maybe you heard about a job, interviewed for a job that you didn't want, you can contribute that information to this web insider group, and uh, and you get, I guess, you get credits for how many uh, leads that you contribute, and then 
you use those credits to, to scrap the pay for your subscription for the site, and then you can see other leads from other people. So it's a really interesting community. Really like cool, I think really cool, cool community site because so many jobs are not you know traditionally posted jobs so that you see them on Indeed. So that's uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, taking networking online. You know that like you said, a lot of these jobs are not posted, and it's a networked way of finding new roles. So that I like that. So it's taking you know kind of crowdsourcing a little bit, and you pay into the community, and the community kind of helps you know what's what's buzzing around. So very nice. Thank yeah, you for sharing it's, that. It's, it's called Exec Thread E X E C Thread on one word dot com. <laughs> just give me a, we'll be sure a free to note month, it. A free, a free <laughs> but they, uh, but yeah, they, they started up back in 2017. I think they had their, like their A round and they've been doing well. Very cool. That, that's one. Well, Michael, you've, you've made it through this gauntlet, which you're an old pro. You had, this was no problem for you, um, for us amateur journalists, you know, Maybe it's me that made it through the gauntlet, <laughs> uh, sure. but I, I I very much appreciate uh, you taking the time. You're a busy man, and um, we appreciate you sharing your insights and predictions with us. And look forward to following up with you down the road and, and kind of maybe checking in on this conversation to see where we were right and where we were wrong. Yeah, cool.